I'm reading roughly the last half of 1 Corinthians 11, if you'd like to follow along. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to begin at verse 23, a paragraph that is familiar to you. It continues into another that is not quite so familiar to us. Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. The schedule of worship of our church calls for us to come six times a year to occasions like this, five on a Sunday, one on a Thursday, in which we celebrate our understanding of the great redemption that we have in Jesus Christ by holding in our hands a tiny piece of bread and a small cup of grape juice, and are reminded that those cups and that bread holds much more than is apparent to the eye because in those elements and in our use of those elements, there is potentially a great blessing from the heart and hand of our God. We come to times like this, not because at some point along the continuum of church history, some missionary or some bishop or pastor or elder of deacon had a bright idea, a way for the church to commemorate the death of Jesus and introduce something new to the life of the church. We come because the one that we call Lord on the last night of his life was the first to lift a piece of bread like this and a cup like these and say to those who were with him and all who afterward would follow him, do this in remembrance of me. Three of the four gospels record these words of institution and in the book of Acts we find the theme taken up by angels and by apostles as well. But here in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we find the single most definitive statement about the communion service or the Lord's Supper that is available to us anywhere on the pages of God's Word. And on this communion Sunday, I'd like to speak to you about some of the salient points that Paul makes about things that we are to be remembering or thinking about as we come to the table. We notice with interest that Paul introduces his teaching on the subject by saying, I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you. There are words very much like this in the 15th chapter of the same gospel where Paul says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose according to the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to a mysterious experience that he had. He says that he was raised up to the third heaven where he heard words that could hardly be expressed. This seems to be a time at which Paul was somehow brought into the very presence of Christ himself and received directly from the Lord, not from any man, the truths that became the core of the gospel that he would later preach. In the first chapter of Galatians, he writes of that gospel and he says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. You will remember that the other apostles were with Christ during the course of his earthly ministry, and they were taught directly by him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to himself and says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time, leaving us to conclude that at some time in his life, quite possibly during those 14 quiet years that separated the conversion of Paul from the beginning of his youthful service, useful service to Christ's church, that the Lord Jesus summoned Paul to himself and revealed things to him that were already known by the others in order that among them and among us there might indeed be one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Here we're reminded of the great importance attached to what we are about to do in our worship. For these words in 1 Corinthians 11 are not merely the words of Paul. They are not just a part of the creed or the theology of the apostolic church, but they are the words of Christ himself, received by the apostle and passed on to the church. Paul says, I delivered them unto you, and we notice he's speaking in the past tense. These words about the communion service were not new to Christians living in Corinth. He is simply reminding them of things he told them while he was with them during the year and a half that he was used by Christ to establish that church. And among those core doctrines are those that relate to the meaning and the observance of this sacrament, our understanding of its meaning. The things that we are to think about while we are participating in it are not things to be determined by sentiment or by tradition but by the word of God. Paul quotes the words of Christ, do this in remembrance of me. We all know those words. We think of them often, particularly on occasions like this. But then we think, what is it that we are to remember about Christ as we prepare to come and actually come to the Lord's table? And we're not quite so sure because Jesus didn't say exactly what he had in mind. But by virtue of his personal, evidently face-to-face -face encounter with Christ, Paul is able to flesh out this commandment, do this in remembrance of me, and give us a more precise idea of what is to be in our mind, in our hearts, as we come to the Lord's table. Paul says that one of those things is that we are come to the communion service introspectively. Let a man examine himself, Paul said. And in fact, in that paragraph, there's a warning that you and I would be foolish to ignore. The apostle seems to be saying that because of the misuse of the sacrament itself, or because of an inadequate approach to its celebration, 
or because of a failure to embrace the faith that it celebrates and represents, some in Corinth were having serious problems with their health, and some had actually died. Paul's euphemism was fall asleep. I don't claim to understand these severe words, but they are found on the pages of a book I believe is the word of God, and they caution me against coming to the Lord's table nonchalantly, not giving it my full attention, not believing all that it proclaims concerning the divine person and the vicarious death and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and not examining myself. There is not so much in the elements themselves which are just symbols, but in our use of these elements, the very presence and the very power of God. It's very important that you and I then approach this table in a manner judged worthy, not by ourselves, not by one another, but by the holy God who meets us at the table. And when the Bible encourages us to examine ourselves, it doesn't have in mind that we look out our life for our hurts and our needs, but rather we are to look for our sins. I don't like to think about my sins. I'll bet you don't like to think about your sins. In fact, if it weren't for moments like this in which our attention is riveted on the death of Christ and the sins in our lives that required that death, we might seldom think about the sins that are in our lives. One of the reasons that certain preachers on television are so popular is that they never mention the word sin as if it has any deadly personal application to their hearers. And there are entire movements among so-called evangelicals in our time that focus not on the ways in which our lives offend the holy standards of God, but on our needs and our pains, on our minor moral lapses and our missed opportunities. Here at his table, reminded that Jesus did not die for our mistakes. It is not in his intention that his Blood should become a balm for our hurts. He didn't go to the cross to show us how to triumph over the trials of life. He died for our sins. And we must understand that apart from that great sacrifice that he offered and our confidence in him as our Savior, we would have no hope in the judgment and nothing to anticipate beyond the grave except the chill of that death that has no end. But here with grateful hearts, we're encouraged to remember the incredible depth of his love and to pour out our hearts and our minds in hymns and prayers of joyful thanksgiving for the mercy that is now ours because of the event these symbols represent. But we also have to remember that sin is not a settled issue in our lives. We are forever saved from its penalty, and we praise God for that, but we live from day to day suffering under its influence. And this is the essence of Paul's let a man examine himself as a part of our preparation for the Lord's Supper. There are those who deny that sin continues to be a problem in their lives and that they therefore don't have to be reminded of their sin. And to them there are several things to say. In Psalm 51 we read the words of David. No one would disagree that David was a godly man, the apple of the eye of God, a man most useful to the Lord. 
And yet in that psalm, it's very plain that David was conscious of his sin and ashamed of that sin in the presence of a holy God. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, we find this great prophet of God, this survivor of the lions, this this man who saw the future by the aid of the Spirit of God going to prayer. He faces Jerusalem and the temple as was his habit. And we're told on that occasion, a part of his regular prayers, that Daniel confessed his sins. Are we now so advanced in holiness that such prayers are not required of us? Paul wrote 2 Timothy at a time when he had been a believer in Jesus Christ and a servant of the Lord for a long, long time, but still he calls himself the chief of sinners. Is it possible that we are more victorious in Christian living than Paul? Isaiah included himself when he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And in the New Testament, the Apostle John included himself when he said, If we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the one we call Lord taught us how to pray. And he said over and over and over, these words should come from our lips, forgive us our debts, forgive us our debts, forgive us our debts, until time has passed away and we stand finally cleansed in his presence. There is no place at this table for that man or that woman or that young person who refuses to own his sin, who fails to acknowledge how hideous our sin in the eyes of the Lord, and who knows neither remorse nor contrition in the presence of a holy God. The Bible's call to us, the Bible's caution to us, is let a man examine himself. Here we gather these symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of the Savior in our hands, and we look inward. And as we do, our consciences come alive and convict us. Here, by these same symbols, we're reminded of the mercy that God offers the contrite, and that that mercy is greater than all of our sins. And here, our spirits soar with gratitude as we hear him say, in response to our prayers of confession, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. With the encouragement of the scriptures, we prepare for the Lord's Supper by looking inward at ourselves and backward to the cross. But we're also urged to look ahead to that glorious moment when Christ shall come and time will be no more. The second coming of Christ is an intriguing subject for any serious student of the Bible. That it will take place is plain. Jesus promised it. The apostles took up the word in their writings. The only way to deny the reality of the return of Christ is to undermine and challenge the authority of the scriptures themselves. And without the scriptures, we know nothing of God, nothing of his redemption, almost nothing of ourselves. Believers are fascinated by this great promise. Christians study it, they preach it. And sometimes I understand they even argue among themselves about the details of the second coming. Will Jesus come before or during or after the millennium? Or will there be a millennium? Will he come before or during or after the great tribulation? Or 
will there be a great tribulation? But when Paul urges us to think about the return of Christ at the Lord's table, he has nothing like this in mind. Here, in the context of our celebration of the Lord's Supper, it would not only be beside the point, but an almost godless distraction from the theme of the occasion for us to use this as an opportunity to talk about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast, satanic numbers and the signs of the times, Gog and Magog and the abomination of desolation. In fact, all of these things seem like childish preoccupations when compared with the lofty purpose of Paul in drawing our attention to the return of Christ as we kneel at this table. The meaning of Paul's words is surely something like this. The conscientious Christian comes to the Lord's table and finds himself once again in a setting in which his conscience burns within him as he examines himself. Tears of repentance and sorrow flow down his cheeks. Disappointment and discouragement fill his heart. His lip quivers as he makes his confession and searches for fresh ways to praise God for his mercy and leaves the sanctuary knowing that in just a few weeks all of this will repeat itself over and over and over. But then by the word of God, his attention is drawn to that glorious moment at the end of time when Christ will appear. No longer as the suffering lamb of God, but now as the lion of Judah. No longer holding in his hands crude Roman nails, but now a shiny sword and a gleaming scepter. The believer longs for that moment. He pants for it as the heart pants after streams of living water. He would do anything in his meager power to bring it about. Not because the second coming of Christ will bring down on the heads of the evil, awful and conspicuous judgment. Not because the Christian will be vindicated in his theology or his moral views by the coming of Jesus but because at that climatic moment of history, when our sometimes nearly hopeless struggle against sin is remembered, and it will be no more. No longer will our consciences burn. No longer will our tears flow. Behind us forever will be the need and the desire to say, oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Then, and only then, Will our spirits know that peace and our souls that rest for which they have craved all of the days of our earthly lives as the followers of Christ? At the Lord's bidding, we come to this place in time, our attention drawn to his death and history and its cause in our sin. Here we who look at ourselves in the mirror of his words and embarrassed by the sight, and here once again in response to the prayers of confession, the divine record is erased and the tears are brushed from our eyes, but the respite of such moments is fleeting and transitory. But here too, we have grown so weary with the struggle against that darkness in our own hearts, are reminded of the certainty of the promise of Christ's return, that the trumpet will sound, the Lord will appear, and the battle at last will be over. If it's fair to say this about any part of the Word of God, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament is Isaiah 40. It begins with these words, Comfort ye my people. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. And it ends this way, 
They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And these beautiful words of hope and comfort and strength are grounded in the promise of the coming of the Lord. We call this the Lord's Supper. We also refer to this as the communion of saints. And with that regard, there's one other thing that needs to be pointed out about the Corinthian church and the Lord's Supper. And that is that there were, as you know, as students of the scriptures, cliques in that congregation. There were groups of people who identified with one another in such a way that they looked at those who were not a part of their group with hostility or disdain or indifference. In that church, there were a few intellectuals, not many, Paul makes it plain, but a few. People who regarded skepticism as the crowning sign of intelligence. These were people with inquisitive minds who never settled on any side of any issue. Men who refused to believe what others said and believed simply because they said it and believed it. Doubting Thomas was their patron saint. They were proud of their uncertainties and one of the Christian facts about which they insisted on being uncertain was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In spite of overwhelming historical evidence and personal testimony, they doubted and they drew their followers and they looked down their scholarly noses at those of simpler faith. Another rift in this church was caused by the fact that there were gifted people in this church God had distributed special talents among the people to enhance their corporate worship, to facilitate their care of one another, to ensure the proper teaching of the gospel. But because these gifts were placed into the hands of sinful men, it inevitably arose that some regarded their gifts as being of much greater importance than others with the resultant threat to the unity of the body. There were also personality cults in Corinth. In the course of sacred history, the people of this church had come under the influence of at least three different preachers. They're identified in the book as Peter and Paul and Apollos, each one called by God, each one useful to God. But in Corinth, there were people who saw or imagined differences among them and identified themselves with their favorite teacher, with the result that in Corinth, in the church, there was a Peter faction, there was a Paul faction, and there was an Apollos faction. And these factions competed with one another for control of the session of the church and the Sunday school and all of the ministries of the church, each regarding itself as closer to the truth and therefore better prepared to lead. And while Paul doesn't mention this particular rift, it must have been true because it is true everywhere, that there was a rift in the Corinthian church between the Marthas and the Marys of that congregation. Marthas are those people who believe that the best way to serve Jesus is to get busy for Jesus. Marys are those people who believe that the best way to honor Jesus is to study him and his word. The Marthas at Corinth would have been those who believed that the church's single most important activity was the charity wash that they had down at the corner gas station on Saturday mornings to earn money for the building program. And the Marys would have insisted that the most important activity was their Bible study and prayer meeting. 
In fact, the church needs Martha's and Mary's. But what it needs most are Martha's who recognize the need for Mary's and Mary's who recognize the need for Martha's. Unfortunately, because the Martha's and the Mary's at Corinth were infected with the same nature that inhibits our ability and desire to serve Christ, there would have been between them the same kind of rift that we sometimes see in the church today. In Corinth, there would have been those who say, only Martha's should have a say in what goes on in this church. And on the other side of the aisle, there would have been those who had made the same claim for the Mary's. It sounds childish to hear it said in that way, and yet we sometimes hear it said. There's a tradition in this church regarding our celebration of the Lord's Supper that wasn't my idea. I don't know whose idea it was. I inherited it. It was in place when I came to the church, and I love it. And it's found in the fact that when the bread is passed among us, we all hold, all of us who choose to participate, the bread until everyone has been served, and then representing our, our oneness in Christ, we all eat together. But then remembering that we also come to him and receive grace from him individually when the cup is passed, each person who wishes to participate takes a cup, loses himself in thoughtful, prayerful meditation, and then drinks without respect to what anyone else in the room is doing. It's important that we remember that we come to Jesus individually. No one is saved because his wife or her husband was saved. Nobody is saved because their parents or their grandparents or their children or their grandchildren are saved. To receive salvation, we come to Christ one-on-one, -on -one, and he gives it to those who seek it. It's important for us here individually to close ourselves in, to pretend that we are the only person in the room as we bury our head in our hands and lose ourselves in self-examination and confession and then rejoice for the mercy with which God again has cleansed us. But it's also good that we should look up through the fingers of the hands that cradle our faces and recognize, in fact, there are others in the room. Others who also claim Christ as Savior and strive to please him as Lord. And recognize that as we come to him individually, he draws us together that we might worship and know him and serve him together. For Christians to mark and to celebrate their differences is like soldiers fighting among themselves with an enemy poised to attack. It's like members of an orchestra falling into raucous debate in the middle of a beautiful symphony. It's like people of a family quarreling around the table over some petty grievance and ruining Thanksgiving dinner for all. As we come to the Lord's table, may it be indeed as the Lord's people. May there be among us that eager reflection of the mercy that we individually receive in order that there might be among us a true communion of the saints. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we are so very grateful for services like this to force us to think of things we might otherwise ignore. And we pray that your spirit might move among us, that he might shape our thoughts, our hearts, Draw us to yourself as you once drew Paul and cause us to leave this place knowing that we have been in the presence of a God 
and the people who love us. We pray in Jesus' name.